So we all know, or at least we've all heard, why we're here today. It's because Jesus died for our sins. All right, good job. You did well. You do well, right? And on which day did he rise again? On the third day, it was a Sunday morning, on the third day, Jesus rose again, and that's incredible, and it's important to us. We should know these things, but have you ever thought this question before? Maybe at some point in your life, or maybe it's something that you've been struggling with lately. Have you ever had a question similar to, if God is good, then why do bad things happen? Oh, I'm the only one. I, y'all, y'all looking at me like I'm the only one who's ever had a question like that before. If God is good, then why do bad things happen? Or why would a good God allow evil to exist? Or why doesn't God do anything about my suffering? I've heard these questions a lot as a youth pastor. I've, I've help students to to work through some of these questions and a lot more. And and I I usually ask them this question, have you read the Bible? Have you read this book? It's a really good book, by the way, if you haven't, highly recommend it. Uh, It's a number one bestseller around the world. It's a good book. And I think a lot of us, we will look at a couple of scriptures. We'll read the parts that are real familiar, that that people have taken as being just, you know, some of the the gems of scripture. But have you ever read the Bible? I'm talking about from the beginning all the way through to the end. Because if you've ever struggled with this question, you know, why would a good God allow evil? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Or or if God is so good, then why am I having to go through this suffering? I ask, have you read your Bible? Because the Bible answers all of those questions. In fact, if you were to look at all of the religions of earth, Christianity is the only one that not only tells us that evil is present, but it tells us how evil came into our world. You want me to give you a a hint on how that happened? Just go ahead and raise your hand up real quick, and then go like that. (laughs) It was me. It was us. It was humanity. God didn't bring evil into this world. We brought it. We brought it in ourselves. But this book also tells us a story That even though evil is present, and even though it tells us how it came to be, it also shows us and tells us in great detail what God has done to redeem humanity from the evil that we have brought on ourselves. It's a good book. Have you read it? It's a good book. It's a good book. Unfortunately, a lot of people, they, they look at the things that are going on around them, and they, they have to blame it on something. And since a lot of things that happen to us are beyond our control, we tend to look at someone who we think could control it, and unfortunately, we pin the blame on him a lot of times. But the truth is, our God told us how we got in this position and what he has done to help us out of it. Come on, y'all. 
That's the story of Easter. That's the story of Easter. I've heard people who have a religious disease say things like, well, the story of the Bible is not our story. The story of the Bible is not about us. It's Jesus' story, and it's all about him. And let me tell you, it is his story. But it's not just all about him. It's also about us. This is our story. Because Jesus invited us in to his story. From the very beginning, what did he do? He created man and woman in his image and his likeness. And then what did he do? He gave them a responsibility. He told Adam, he said, cultivate the ground. Care for the creation that I have made. And rule and govern it. God gave us the opportunity to partner with him in ruling his creation. From the very beginning, God made his story not just about him, but also about us. He brought us in. He made his story, his life, as our story in our life. Now, that's a good story. That's a good story. So to help us tell this story today, we're gonna, I'm going to preach for a moment, and then we're going to show you something on the screen. I'll preach for a couple more minutes. We'll, we'll do this a few times right here so we can really grasp and understand this story. And today we're going to start from the very beginning. Are you ready? Are you ready? All right, let's see. In the beginning, God created everything. Light, sky, land. All the elements of life sprang from an empty expanse. God made creatures to populate the earth. He hung the sun, the moon, and the stars in the universe. They marked time. They marked seasons. But for what reason? Because God's final and most precious creation was that of men and women. And we, the image bearers, were made to partner with God forever. To cultivate the earth and rule it. To reflect the goodness that God had brought to it. So our Creator eagerly watched for us, the people He loved, to do this job and God rested. Created. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, it gives us this beautiful story, this beautiful account of God creating with nothing more than just the words that he spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. It says that God spoke and all of these things that were created came into being. We serve a powerful God, church. This is the God that we serve. And I love him because he is so powerful. He is so big. But he is so willing to be intimate with you and me. 
I, have you ever noticed this? I don't know if you've ever noticed this. We've got our little garden theme up here today, taking us all the way back to the beginning. Did you notice when God spoke and he, he created land, he created sea, he created the sky, he created birds, he created animals, he created all the things that swarm around in the oceans. God created with the words that he spoke. But I want you to notice this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. It says, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. I've been looking through the Bible trying to, to find something. I, I've noticed so far six or seven different times that the Bible describes God himself getting down into the dirt. One of these times was whenever he created Adam. It says God created Adam from what? The dust, from, from the dirt. In the beginning, God created the world, and then he took some of the dirt and he created a man from it. God got down into the dirt and created a man. And then I want you to notice what happened. Not only did God get down in the dirt and create a man, but the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that God planted a garden. I always assumed that God just spoke into creation and, and poof, there was the Garden of Eden. Just this beautiful, wonderful, perfect paradise. But my Bible tells me that God planted the garden. It's a Hebrew word. It, it means to plant, to dig up some soil, put a seed or a seedling or, or whatever in the soil and to grow. God planted a garden. And then it tells us, and he took his most lovely of creations, Adam, and he placed the man in the garden, this wonderful, beautiful place of perfection. Can you imagine what it must have been like to walk in the garden with God? God planted. God created. God planted. And he took his most beloved of creation and he put him in the garden and he gave them this responsibility in Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden, why? To tend and watch over it. In other words, to cultivate it and to enjoy it. It was a place of enjoyment. It was a place of peace. A place of beauty. The, the word Eden, the Bible doesn't tell us whether Adam named it Eden or whether God named it Eden. We don't know. But the word Eden is a Hebrew word that means pleasure or delight. God created a place of pleasure and delight to live in relationship with his most beloved of creation. It's a beautiful place, a place of peace and a place of rest. On the seventh day, God rested. He rested. We were talking about that in youth last week and the question came up, well, you know, why did God rest? Why, why do we assume that God rested? I assume it's for a few reasons. One of the reasons is because he needed us to understand with our knuckle-headed brains uh, that there comes a point in our life where you've got to rest. You've got to rest. It, it's ingrained in us as a people to work, some of us a little bit more than others maybe, but he, tr he tells us that we need rest. He created us to need rest. 
I think the other reason that God rested on the seventh day was because he just wanted to enjoy what he made. I could just imagine him going and meeting with Adam in the garden and, and walking and just looking at a beautiful waterfall or, or vines coming down out of the trees or, or whatever you can imagine, the beauty of creation that God made in the Garden of Eden and just enjoying it, just taking a walk and just enjoying it. It's a wonderful thought. And God rested and it was good. Everything was good. The Bible tells us that God himself looked at what he made and he said, it is very good. Very good. It was very good. Life was good for a while, guided by God. But following our own desires, we forfeited our job. Instead of partnering with him, we rebelled against him. Marred and in pain, we hid from our creator. Deeply ashamed. What do we do? Where do we turn? Wandering aimlessly, the world started to burn. Death, disease, relational conflict. We were so far from God's intentions. We needed someone to bring us back, someone to remind us of the job we once had. Creation cried for something. Until it wasn't. <laughs> Until it wasn't. You've all heard the story, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they're walking around, and, and they're, they're walking, and, and God in this garden that he planted, he planted two trees, one called the tree of life, and one called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, they're walking around, and, and Satan comes, and he tempts them, and he asks them the question, well, did God say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? But look what God had actually said in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It says, the Lord God warned him, that's Adam. He said, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, everyone, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he gave them the warning of what would happen. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So God put them in this perfect, wonderful place. And he planted all kinds of trees that were, that were good to eat from. And they were beautiful. And he told them there's one tree, just one, 
that you are not allowed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I used to think, I, whenever I read this story, I used to think, well, that's kind of messed up. Like, why would God create this beautiful, wonderful place and then plant a tree there and say, don't eat from that one? Like, <laughs> have, have you ever been to a museum before? And you've seen just this beautiful exhibit. And it's, it's great to look at. It's wonderful to look at. And then there's a sign right underneath it. It says what? Do not touch. What is the only thing that you want to do? The only thing that I want to do is touch it. Right? I just, I just got to touch it like there's a sign there. It's, it's beautiful. It looks great. It looks lovely. And then there's the sign there that says, do not touch. Well, of course I want to touch it. I used to think, wow, God, that, that's, that's a, kind of a tricky thing to do. Why would you do that? But then I got to thinking about it. The verse before, God told Adam, he said, you can eat from every tree in the garden except for this one. I used to think, wow, it's kind of selfish of God, but think about it. God created and God planted, not Adam. Adam didn't create, Adam didn't plant, God created and God planted. It all belonged to God. And then God told Adam, you can eat, you can do with it, what you want, you can enjoy it however you, want, however you see fit, except for one tree. Let me try to put this in a little bit of perspective for us. Imagine I was to to call you up here today and say, hey, I want to give you a billion dollars. Here's a billion dollars. Lay it all out on the table. And I didn't bring my billion dollars today because it's a headache to go to the bank and withdraw a billion dollars. Uh, so I didn't bring that, but I did bring one. Imagine I laid it all out on a table before you. Said, here's a billion dollars. But this one dollar bill right here, Serial number L03890038E. You cannot spend this one. You can do with what you want with the rest of it. You can spend it. You can save it. You can give it away. You can invest it. You can do whatever you want with all of the 999,999,999 other dollars. But this one right here is not for you to spend. What would your reaction be? I just gave you over $999 million. What would your reaction be? You would probably be pretty excited. You would probably be a little bit grateful, hopefully. You would probably start to think, well, man, I, I can shift my focus from all of these other things that I, I had in my life, and I can focus on what I need to focus on. I can focus on the people that I need to focus on. I can focus on serving the Lord. I can focus on doing all these things. Why? Because I don't have to go out and scratch a living anymore. We'd probably be pretty grateful. But it's somewhere in our human nature, for whatever reason, to think about not the 999 million other dollars, but that one right there. Why did Sam tell me that I couldn't spend this? And Sam, with all of his abundance of riches and wealth, gave me 
999,999,999 other dollars. Apparently, he's got the money to be able to do that for me. So why would he miss just one dollar? Why is it that he told me I couldn't spend just that one right there? And God in the garden, he created it all and told man, tend it, watch it, enjoy it. It's yours to eat from except for this one. What he's doing is he's telling Adam this, I've created this and you're my most wonderful of creations and I want you to enjoy what has been created. But I need you to remember, Adam, that you are not God. I am God. You are not God. And this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it will be a symbol and a sign to you that although you can enjoy all the rest of creation, although you can rule over all of the rest of creation, you need a reminder that you, Adam, are not God. I am God. I used to think, wow, that, that seems kind of messed up of God to, to withhold that one thing. But it was a reminder to Adam, why? To protect him. And we see Adam and Eve as they Walking around the garden, Satan comes and tempts them. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Notice how twisted he is. Eve says, no, of course we can eat from the trees of the garden. All of them except for this one. Satan says, well, why is that? Don't you know that God's only reason for telling you not to eat that was because he didn't want you to become like him? Spoiler alert, God already created Adam and Eve like him in his image and in his likeness. They were already like God. They were not God, but they were already made in his likeness. And isn't that how Satan always comes? He always comes and tries to just twist it just a little bit, just pervert it, just a tad. He says, if you would eat this, then you would become like God. And you could decide what's good and what's bad. And you could make the rules. The Bible tells us that Eve, she looked at the fruit and she saw how beautiful it looked. And I can imagine the question was swirling around in their minds, well, if God is good, and if what God created is good, then why would he not want me to have this good thing? And so they start to think, well, either this isn't good and God is protecting me, but it sure looks good. So maybe God isn't good and he doesn't want me to have what is good. So what happens, church? They reach up to the tree. They pick its fruit and they eat it. They take something, they took something that did not belong to them. It was not theirs to take. And in their rebellion and in their desire to become gods themselves, they messed it up for the rest of us. <laughs> Thanks, Adam and Eve. I've always heard people say, whenever I get to heaven, oh my goodness, I'm going to have a talk. With Adam and Eve, my, 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 how they made things difficult for us. But we're the same way. 
all of us want to be gods in our own eyes too. How many times have, mm, this is going to hurt someone's feelings today, I'm sorry. <laughs> How many times have you ever opened the Bible and you thought, mm, nope, don't like that part right there. Mm-mm. <laughs> Anybody else, me and Brother Billy, we're the only ones. How many of you have ever read and been like, oh, no, don't like that part right there. Well, guess what? You're not God. You don't get to make the rules. You don't get to decide which parts you do and don't follow. You don't get to decide which parts are good and bad for you. Why? Because it's not yours. It belongs to God. It's God's word. These are his words. But so many of us, just like Adam and Eve, we take the parts that we want, throw away the parts that we don't. Adam and Eve, their sin was disobedience, but their sin was also rebellion. They didn't want to be under God's authority. They wanted to be the authority. So they took what didn't belong to them. And what was their punishment? Do any of y'all remember? For Adam, the punishment was thorns, obstacles. We tend to think that they're punishment was God kicking them out of the garden. No, God told them that the curse for sin for Adam would be thorns, obstacles, things that get in the way, things that choke, things that make life difficult. That's not the way it was supposed to be, church. Let me tell you, that is not the way God designed this world and the human to be. He did not create us to have to go through struggles and difficulties and, and situations that are hard. But the curse of sin was thorns and obstacles. The curse for Eve was difficulty in childbearing. And the the Hebrew gives us a little bit more, not just in, in birthing a child, but difficulty in raising a child. Are there any moms that says, hey, I've, I've noticed that, that's still pretty true today. <laughs> and ultimately, the curse for both of them was death. 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 Verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 says, So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. I want you to remember God created, God planted, God formed man, and God placed him in the garden, and God gave him the responsibility, and God was the one who put the trees there. It was all God. What happened, though? Man got in his own way. Man said, you know what? This, God created all this, but he created it for my enjoyment, right? He created it for me to be a place of, of pleasure and delight. So I'm going to delight myself in this tree right over here. And because of that, the result is ultimately death for humanity. And years passed and generations passed and all of creation cried for a Savior. And this Bible tells us a story of extreme tragedy. Extreme tragedy. If you're looking around at the world that you're living in today and asking the question, why? Why is all this happening? Can I give you some hope today? That is not the way it was supposed to be. It is not the way it was supposed to be. That is not the way that God designed, planned, or intended. Creation cries for a Savior, and God in his grace and mercy, this is so beautiful, 
already had a plan to redeem us. Church, he already had a plan to redeem us. I think it was Brother Don that mentioned uh, this morning during worship from from Genesis chapter 3. We see that God, he cursed Satan with this curse, that his head would be crushed by a man that would come from a woman's seed. I don't know if you noticed this or not. Uh, we, don't wanna, we don't have to talk about anatomy today, but uh, women are not the ones that, that have the seed. Man is. God said you would be crushed by the woman's seed. It's a prophetic word talking that there would be a man that would be born from a virgin woman. God's plan for redemption was Jesus. Jesus. Come on, Jesus. So God left heaven and entered his creation. In humility, as a baby, the hope of humanity. Some expected royalty, some revolution. But all had hopes for how he'd use his influence. The whole time, God had one thing in mind, his partner's redemption. A new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of loving. But Jesus knew where he was heading. He performed miracles and healed the sick, even the nobodies were somebodies to him. Religious resistance couldn't stop him. No earthly desire could entice him. So Jesus taught us what it really means to be human. Because of our sin, the sin that we brought, and the damaging habits that we wouldn't stop, the chasm we opened was shaped like a cross. The night of his trial, Jesus gathered the disciples together. He prepared them and served them, fully knowing what awaited him. He washed every foot in the room, even those of the man who would send him to a tomb. Jesus was arrested in a garden, the same place where our story started. Tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, they placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. Thorns, something the earth wasn't meant to produce pierced the Creator's brow while nails pierced his hands. Onlookers and soldiers began to understand. This was an innocent man. But it was too late. It is finished. Our hope hung on a cross. The earth quaked. And that was the moment that our God died. Our story started in a garden. Wonderful, beautiful place that God planted. And we see in the moments before Jesus' death, where did he go? He went to a garden called Gethsemane. And there he prayed, and there he cried, 
And there he begged and pleaded with God the Father if there was any other way to redeem man's souls. Is there any other way? But if there's not, your will be done. Think about it, church. How did we mess up? I want my will. I want my will. And Jesus goes back to a garden. And it's there that he says, God, not my will, but yours be done. Don't you love the word of God? How beautiful is that? And it's in that garden that Jesus cries and he sows tears. And it's in that garden that one of his best friends would betray him. It was in that garden, again, that one man would say, it's my will that's going to be done today. And again, in a garden, man chooses his own desires. But through that, there would be a wonderful, glorious hope up ahead. I want you to look at this right here. John tells us about the place where Jesus was killed. John chapter 19, verse 41. He said the place of crucifixion was near a garden. Near a garden. Why is John tell us, telling us that where Jesus died was near a garden? He's telling a story through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's telling us a story. He's taking us back to where we started. They were familiar. The Jewish people were familiar with the garden story. They were familiar with what man decided in that garden so long ago. They were familiar and they were waiting for a Messiah, a Savior who would come and set things right again. And John tells us that the crucifixion happened near a garden. He says, where there was a new tomb. Where was the tomb, church? No, 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 the crucifixion was near the garden. Where was the tomb? It was in the garden. It says, the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb. The new tomb was in a garden, never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus was buried in a garden. Buried. Or should we say planted? Could it be that God once again planted in a garden? A seed that once again would bring this tree of life to humanity. John chapter 12, verse 23, this is what Jesus said of himself before he would go to the cross, shortly before he would go to the cross. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, 
unless a kernel of wheat, this word kernel is a Greek word, it just means seed, unless a seed of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But it's death. Who's he talking about? Himself. He's talking about himself. Its death will produce many new seeds, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Jesus, God's answer for our sin, says there's going to be a seed that will be planted in the earth again. And this seed will produce a mighty harvest. Can I tell you today that in 2023, we are still experiencing the fruit of the harvest of that tree that was planted in a garden near Calvary's Hill. Mm. And we get to benefit. We are the plentiful harvest of new lives, church. That's you and me. Early in the morning, while it was still dark, a woman entered the garden, the place this journey got its start. His body is missing. My Lord is gone, she cried in confusion to the new dawn. Mary. With one word, everything changed, because a man that was dead was calling her name. Breath in his lungs, scars on his hands, the creator of the universe had brought life from death. The chasm was closed, the mission complete. Now redemption is possible for all who believe. We can get our old jobs back, partnering with the God who died to mend the gap. Hope is alive, and we get to deal it. Goodness is possible, and we get to see it. A kingdom is coming, and is now here. With a king who conquered death, and hell, and fear. So will you accept the invitation to partner with God and restore creation? John chapter 20, verse 11 says, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stopped and looked in, and she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I do not know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. 
Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. And she's the first person that saw Jesus resurrected. She's the first person that saw the sprout that came up from an empty tomb. The seed that had been planted in this garden is now growing and it's been resurrected to life. And she sees this man and she assumes he's the gardener probably because her eyes are filled with tears too. (laughs) Where have you put him? Tell me where you put him. I'm going to go get him. Little did she know she was talking to the gardener and the seed and the tree because now this seed that had been planted had resurrected to life, had come sprouting out of the ground, and and now this tree is growing. And she's talking to the gardener and the seed and the tree, and he says, Mary. And that voice, that familiar voice, hit her like a ton of bricks. And she realized then what was happening. A man who had been dead was now calling her name. That there is life after death. And here's the beautiful part, church. Whenever we talk about resurrection, we always think of Easter. We always think of Jesus. But the promise from the Word of God is that resurrection was not just for Jesus. Resurrection was for you and me, too. Resurrection is for you and me, So how do we experience this resurrection? How do we experience this hope, this wonderful, glorious hope? How do we experience it? Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, Paul tells us, he says, Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. And then he tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. That is your hope, church. That is your future, believers, to be raised to life again. Verse 6, he says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ, so that sin might lose its power in our lives, we are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with Him. So how do you experience today? If you're here and you say, how do I experience this? How do I experience this love? How do I get in on this? we got to go back to the garden. We've got to die to the passions of our sinful nature. What do you have to do, church? You have to be planted in the ground. You have to be planted in the ground. You have to bury your old man 
You have to bury your sinful nature. You have to bury your old ways. You've got to bury your own motives. You've got, mm, you've got to bury your will in the ground. It's not my will. I'm not God. It's your will. You are God. How do you become saved? By doing that right there. Saying, I'm, I'm going to bury my will and I'm going to put my faith in the one that I know can raise the dead back to life. Mm. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42, he says, it's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Listen up, church. The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person. He takes us back to the garden. But the last Adam, that is Christ, he is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is this natural body. Then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth. Church, we have been made from the dust of the earth. And one day, unless... Jesus comes back very quickly. We're going to return to the earth. We're going to be planted back in the earth. But here's the hope for every believer. Even though these natural bodies will go back to the earth, Jesus, the life-giving spirit, his promise is to resurrect us to life again. We will have a new body, a spiritual body. That's the promise from our Lord. Verse 46, or verse uh, 47, I'm sorry. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying is this. Dear brothers and sisters, our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. What is Paul saying? He spends almost the entire book of Romans explaining this concept right here. He's saying this, you in your flesh, this physical body cannot work for salvation. You have to put your faith, you have to plant your faith in the finished work of Christ and allow yourself to remember it's because of him alone that I can be saved. This body can't inher inherit eternal life, only a spiritual body that comes from the life-giving spirit, Jesus. So how are you saved? Plant that old flesh. Plant that old selfish, sinful desires. Plant your will in the ground and be resurrected to new life in Jesus with faith in God. Come on. We're going to take communion this morning. Let's go ahead and play something quietly, please. Uh, 
Whenever you came in, you should have grabbed uh, one of these little communion cups. If for some reason you didn't get one or you didn't notice it, we've got some ushers. If you would, just raise your hand. If you don't have one, they'll come and bring you one. If you don't have a communion, just raise your hand. Raise it up real high so they can see you there and bring it to you. You want to know what I think is possibly the most beautiful part about this whole story we've heard today? In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, I want you to remember what, what did God tell them? He, he said, still a couple of hands up. What did he tell them? He said, you can eat from every tree except for one, this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not a math genius. We're homeschooling our children, and poor Emily, she, she's got definitely the brunt of that duty because uh, I, I'm just, I'm not a math kind of guy. But I can do some simple math. He said you can eat from every tree except for one. How many trees specifically did it say that God planted in Eden? Specifically. It said specifically there were two. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of... The invitation for Adam and Eve was that they could eat from the tree of life. They could eat from the tree that gives eternal life. It was an invitation open to them. Adam and Eve chose not to do it for whatever reason. The Bible doesn't tell me, and I wish I knew. Sometimes I wish I could just go back and just pop them in the back of the head. Just, come on, it's the wrong tree. <laughs> put, the, keep, put that fruit down. Grab this fruit over here. The invitation was that they could eat from the tree of life. But whenever they sinned, what did God say? He had a conversation within himself, and he says, look, they've become like us and that they know what's good and bad. So that they don't reach out and grab the fruit from the tree of life and be permanently doomed to the sin that they have committed, we gotta kick them out. We gotta get them out of here. I used to think that the curse for their sin was that they got kicked out of the garden. No, 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 church, listen. That was the greatest blessing that they got after they sinned. Why? Because if they would have reached out and grabbed the fruit from that tree of life, they would have been eternally doomed to the sin that they had committed. So God kicks them out. Not only does he kick them out, but he stations what the Bible tells us, a flaming sword, went back and forth in front of the tree of life so that they could not come back and try to get it and try to take it and try to steal it again. Why? It's because God had a plan for their redemption. It was a blessing that they couldn't eat from the tree of life then. But I want you to notice what happens shortly before Jesus goes to the cross. What does he do? He gets with his disciples in an upper room, and they have a feast, a, a Passover feast prepared for them there. And what does he do? He takes the bread, and he breaks it. And what does he say then? Take this and, take this and eat it. 
In the garden, God said, don't eat from this tree. He's telling them, I want you to eat from the tree of life. Jesus comes back. He says, listen, the invitation's still open. You can eat from the tree of life again. You can have eternal salvation again. You can live in right relationship with God again. Take it. Eat it. Gets a glass of wine and starts passing it around the room. He says, this is my blood. Take it and drink it. The bread is my body. The wine is my blood. What is he doing? He's saying, eat of this tree of life. This tree that will be planted in the ground. This is the tree that you want to eat from. Mm. So if you would open the top part of your little communion there. There's a little thin piece of plastic on the top. You can see there's kind of there's a little wafer in there. If you open it too far, then you've got to the juice. <laughs> if you're like, I don't have a cracker on mine, just look on the top of the lid. It's, it should be on there. If for some reason it's not, then you can raise your hand. They'll bring you another one. So this is my body. The invitation is that you can take it and eat it. So we're going to pray and then we're going to take this together. I want to give you just a moment to examine yourself. Paul says, before you take of communion, to examine yourself, to examine your life. And so God, we thank you for this opportunity to share in you, to share in your story. That God, even whenever we messed things up so bad, you had a plan even then to bring us back into partnership with you again, to restore creation to that perfect, beautiful, wonderful place that you designed and created it to be. Lord God, we thank you for your word that it tells such a beautiful story. God, that our story got started in a garden, and whenever we thought all hope was lost, you brought us back to a garden. You planted your son Jesus in the ground, and on the third day, he rose again to life, a life-giving spirit. Lord, we thank you for the body that was broken on the cross. That you died for our sins. And that through your broken body, we can be healed. We can be set free. We thank you, Jesus. And Lord, as we take this part of communion, we choose to recognize and to remember the sacrifice that you made and to be a grateful people that once again we can enjoy fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, you may eat it. next one's a little bit trickier to open. <laughs> if you don't open it carefully, it could get all over the place. And Miss Diane would not like that. If you got some small children, you may want to help them open that. I'll give you just a second to do that. And we want to always encourage you to take communion with your children here. I know there's a lot of religious ideas and denominations out there that'll say, well, a child can't take communion, but I don't read that in my Bible. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful thing for the family to take communion together and for the parents to teach their children what this means, what this represents. 
said, take this and drink it, for this is my blood. Blood that paid the price, that bought, that bought our redemption. That made it possible for us to come back into right relationship with God. The curse from the beginning was death. God told Adam and Eve, he said, don't eat its fruit. Why? Because you will surely die. The punishment, the result of sin is death. And it would take someone who never sinned, who never took his own will, who would give up his rights and die for us to go through that death for us so that we don't have to experience it. And here's the beautiful truth. One day this, this, this body of dust is going to die. But that life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit that through Jesus gives, means that although this body will die, I will never die. I'm going to live in eternity with my Father in heaven because of this. Because he paid the price for me. So Jesus, we thank you for your blood. We thank you that you died in our place so that we wouldn't have to experience being separated from the Father for all eternity, God. We thank you that you have brought us back into fellowship with you, into communion with you, Lord, that we can walk with you in the garden again. And Lord, even though there is wickedness and there is there's suffering in the world that we live in now, we know that we can still live in the peace of the garden through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, you may take. Shortly after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are together in a room again. They know Jesus or have heard that Jesus had been resurrected, but they'd only heard reports from a few women. None of the men, none of the disciples had seen him yet. The Bible tells us, unfortunately, that that they heard the testimony of the women, of Mary and a few other women that saw the resurrected Jesus. And they came back and they told the disciples, but the Bible tells us, unfortunately, they didn't believe them. They're still living thinking that Jesus is, is dead. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. I want you to notice what Jesus did. The first time he met his disciples, after the resurrection, they're gathered together in a locked room because they're afraid that they're going to be next to be nailed onto a cross. They're scared. And they're all huddled up together. Who shows up? Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 20 says, as he spoke, he shows up in the room, he starts speaking to them. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace. Again, he said, peace. 
He said that peace that God intended for you is available again. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. God created Adam and he breathed the breath of life into him and put him in a place of peace and here Jesus comes again and the finished work is done on the cross. It's been completed. He's resurrected. He meets with his disciples again. They're in shock. They're in disbelief. They're what is going on? He, he was dead. We, we saw him. We heard about it. But he's alive now. And Jesus again <sighs> breathes on them. The breath of life. Receive the Holy Spirit. Church, we have the opportunity today to come back to life. And it's all because of the finished work of Christ. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing? going to sing one song of worship we'll be dismissed this morning as we sing I want to encourage you to think about the sacrifice that God has made for us and to understand that the opportunity to come back to life is for us the resurrection is for us we get to still be a part of his story so as we sing this song let's worship with all of our hearts today.